The General Services Administration is struggling with a major systems modernization project, and it's not the first time. This one's causing an increasingly high level of frustration among vendors and grantees. Now a powerful congressman is demanding answers. Why, about three months into the transition to the new way for vendors to identify themselves for federal contractor grant awards, GSA continues to struggle. It's all covered in Federal News Network's Jason Miller's Weekly Reporter's Notebook. Jason joins me now with exclusive details on the unique entity identifier. And Jason, this UEI is the replacement for the DUNS number that GSA is pursuing many years, correct? And what's the problem with it? Over the last five, six, seven years, GSA has been on this path to really move away from the DUNS number. And the DUNS number from Dun & Bradstreet will cost the government something to the effect of $19 million a year to support it. And GSA wanted to get to a more open source, open standard based type of 12 character alphanumeric identifier that's owned and managed by the government. So this transition went into, it has been in the works the better part of a couple years now, Tom. But on, on April 4th, GSA pulled the plug and, and launched UEI, got rid of Dunn's number. And since April 4th, and, and it's not gone well in the least bit. I've heard from a number of industry folks that there's been transition problems on top of transition problems, on top of help desk problems, on, on top of big challenges. Tom, you know, it started out instantly with, well, GSA didn't really put the right algorithm together to take out certain words that are certain bad words that came up as your new unique identifier. I was given the access to a spreadsheet that shows, you know, like some people got 12 digit number that had curse words in it. And, and while that's a little funny for me and you, it's kind of not good for the company when there's 100,000 of them that they had to reissue because of this problem. So in other words, the, like random number generators, alphanumeric, the alpha part came out, bad words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Exactly. But also that just started this downward spiral that, that I think in a lot of ways the UEI has been in. Now things are, are worse. What I'm hearing from, from different vendors and vendor associations is some companies have had to they go to get their UEI number and they have to deactivate their NUNS number. But when they go to reactivate their UEI number, they get held up. And the held up is because it used to be Tom Temin and Associates with an ampersand. But you registered it, Tom, with Tom Temin and A&D Associates. So the difference between the A&D and the ampersand is now causing you to be deactivated and kicked out of the system. Or something as simple as, well, you've registered yourself with the state as the Jason Miller Company, but you've always been known as Jason Miller Company, the, because that's just the way GSA wanted to do it. But because you've registered with the state one way and now you're listed a different way, you're kicked out. So that is causing companies not to get paid on time. I talked to one DOD contracting officer who said they have a small business who's owed $400,000 but can't get the UEI situation resolved and therefore can't get paid. I talked to another small business in the professional services sector who's waiting on a payment of more than $200,000 and then also learned that an agency customer wanted to issue them a task order that they couldn't get because of this UEI situation. So these are just two examples, but there's Unfortunately, Tom, dozens, if not hundreds of these types of problems. Right. Those are the ones they know about. There are you know, hundreds of thousands of contractors. And this whole data association and data elements issue in one form or another is so old. Sounds like a case for artificial intelligence. But in the meantime, if you've got contractors complaining they can't get paid, that's going to bring in Congress eventually. And now it has, right? Correct. Federal News Network has learned and obtained the letter that Congressman Jerry Connolly sent to GSA on July 15th. The chairman of the Oversight Reform Subcommittee on Government Operations is demanding answers from GSA, five different questions about the transition, what the problems are, what they're doing to fix it. He said he's heard from 
from constituents that they've struggled to transition to the UEI, and they're really, it's really kind of, there's also not getting help from GSA. They're online frequently asked questions, or they're stuck on telephone calls for hours with customer service representatives. They're unable to fix the problem. And I think that letter is just showing the level of frustration that is happening across the community. And, and Tom, remember, GSA has already struggled with the transition to other major systems like the SAM.gov from FedBizOps, like the beta.sam.gov transition as well. Those did not work well, and GSA has promised time and again, we've learned our lessons, we're going to do it better, we, we have it figured out, and here they are struggling to get this UAI transition going. And now as we enter the fourth quarter buying season, agencies and, and vendors are alike are pretty fed up with how this has gone. And does GSA have a vendor that is operating all of this or do they buy a random number generator program <laughs> and they're just trying to populate a database with it? So back in 2018, they did award EY a contract for about $41 million to come up and run- To save the $19 UE- million. Dollars. Well, to, to, to come up and run this UEI initiative. Now, the difference is that they had to develop it, create the system. And now also Booz Allen Hamilton is running the integrated acquisition environment, the IAE program as well. So you have a combination of two vendors who are part of it. But again, this goes back to GSA, the requirements, the testing. I talked with Robert Shea, the former associate administrator at OMB, and now is over at Grant Thornton. He goes, listen, it seems kind of intuitive that you would test a bunch of different scenarios before going live That because this impacts every vendor of the largest buyer in the world. And it just doesn't seem like that GSA thought to test every scenario, or if they did, those tests weren't great. So I think that's the frustration that, that is, is going on here. Not that the contractor is good or bad, or the system just isn't right. working very well. All right. So they took something that worked perfectly for small money, and now it's a complete mess. <laughs> what does GSA say they're going to do now to fix this? Because they're really under the gun here, it sounds like. To GSA's credit, they acknowledge that this is a problem. They acknowledge that they have to do more to fix it. And I heard from Dave uh, Zavenovich, the deputy commissioner of GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, and he called the, the fixing of the UEI transition a top priority. He goes, we are making progress. We know we are trying to resolve some specific cases. Uh, we realize that we need to make this ability to register in SAM.gov a predictable and timely way. Uh, we also know that, that we're working to identify other opportunities to reduce the impact. But, but at the same time, it's, I think, not going fast enough. And I think what, you know, what I've heard from, for instance, the Professional Services Council is GSA has suggested that if you have a big problem, go to the ombudsman. Talk to the ombudsman. Maybe see if they could help. I also talked to someone in the grants community, Cynthia Smith from Humentum, and she talked about how GSA actually told them to go back to their customer agencies. For a lot of the people in, the, in her community, which is uh, in international NGOs, they work with USAID and state. And they're saying, go to them to help solve your problem. Sure. Because then USAID goes to state, or state goes to GSA to solve the problem. It just he, She called it inefficient and not really effective. And, and then the last thing I'll say about GSA is, again, they understand what they're trying to do. They, they understand the problem. They understand that they're trying to fix it. And they're trying to get through it as quickly as possible. So it's not like they're ignoring it, but it's just, I think, what folks want to see is more transparency and more understanding of when this will be fixed and what are they doing to fix it. And a final question, is there any back door to go back to Dunn's temporarily or did they put a stake in the heart of that vampire? So when they started the move to the UEI, they did extend the Dunn's number for three months and that ended 
in June. And there are some people who have said to me, well, maybe they should just kind of reinstate that and, and keep it going for another three months. I think it may be too late. It's been a couple of weeks since that ended. And, and if they've started to clean out the Duns numbers and turn off the old system, I, I think that it may just be too late to, to go back. At the same time, Tom, there's a lot of good reasons to move away from the Duns number. Dun and Bradstreet, there's a proprietary information. You're you know, pained DMB forever. Uh, so I think the UEI transition is not necessarily a bad idea. Again, it goes back to GSA's ability to modernize their systems and why do they continue to have trouble. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Check out his reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. 
Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com slash vision. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. <laughs> 